This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. This is Women to Watch. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children who want change. Be inspired by women from across the globe who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Now, Women to Watch. Here's your host, Sue Rocco. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in to another week of Women to Watch here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. My name is Sue Rocco, and we have a great show for you tonight. My special guest, who's right here with me in the studio, is Kay Yu. And Kay leads the litigation and employment and labor groups at Ahmad Zafaris, which is a law firm uh, right here in Philadelphia. And she has an amazing story of what I'm describing as discovery and determination. So I'm really looking forward to sharing her story with all of you. Be sure to stay with us during the breaks where you'll hear from our watch team of contributors who will be bringing you the latest information on health, technology, law, and leadership. And I'm thrilled and excited to announce that Mary Manzo of Pathways Consulting, one of our sponsors, is going to be making her debut tonight for our Technology Watch. So stay tuned for Mary. And be sure, as always, to visit us at womentowatch.net. That's women2watch.net. And click on our lineup to see who's coming on the show Uh, And just always be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well for all things related to Women to Watch. And now, without any further ado, I'd like to welcome Kay to the show. Thank you so much, Sue. It's very nice of you to take time out of your schedule, which I know is quite busy, and come over here to be with me today. So I'm, I'm very grateful and excited to share your story, which is very interesting and unique, as is everyone's. Um, so I, you know, your upbringing and and backstory really led directly to the work that you're doing today, which is one of the key pieces, I would say. And, um, so I'd love to start with your coming to the U.S. from Seoul, Korea, where you were born at the age of three. While you don't remember that, perhaps, um, I know that you've heard some stories and you have some knowledge of what brought your family here. Yes, Absolutely. Uh, so much of that is tied into uh, my mom, and uh, my story is, is the story of my mother, uh, even though uh, she passed away at a very young age. She was 49, mm, and I was 20. Uh, but even with uh, her not being alive in my life, she's certainly played a great role, as she did from the moment that I was born and from the moment that we came to the United States, which, of course, uh, is my home and the only place I've ever called home. Mm. Did you come right to Philadelphia? I don't think so. No, no. no. So um, I grew up in Seattle. Okay. And there, um, growing up like in so many families, my my mom was a sole income earner Mm -hmm. and we lived just above the poverty line. But she made sure that I had the opportunities that come with education and uh, 
I am a great believer in our public education system, and uh, that's where I grew up in Seattle, going to public schools. Tell me a little bit more about your mom and what the kind of relationship you had with her that stays with you even even today as we're talking. I can see in your eyes how important she is in your life. Yeah, thanks for asking that. Uh, nothing makes me more proud than to talk about my mom and what she did, particularly uh, for me. Uh, I really uh, so grateful for her because she really did sacrifice everything so that I could have the opportunities that I have, and she she made it so that I could be living the American dream. Mm. So she came from a family of academics and her father founded a university in Seoul. Wow. And she attended that university and then ultimately became a professor there. So she taught English at the college that her, her father founded. Okay. So... That's she left a life of of some privilege there um, to to come to Seattle. Um, and while my father was uh, getting his PhD at the University of Washington, she supported the family. Wow, yeah. And she was an entrepreneur, which is another thing that makes me very proud to think of um, because she came with no plan. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but d- somehow decided that she would make the investment of buying an, an IBM Selectric typewriter. Okay. And used her English skills to type uh, students' dissertations. So that's what she did initially. She uh, did that out of the house and charged per page for typing people's dissertations. This this was a while back. Yeah. <laughs> Typewriters. <laughs> when I hear that word, it takes me back to high school. Yeah, because we came in 1968. Okay. Yeah. And did she know English before she came? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, so she took advantage of that skill set and um, through relationships that she built from the students who were all going to the University of Washington, she got a job uh, doing... Uh, secretarial work, mm-hmm. and she was at the College of Engineering at the university and worked her way up, as would be typical, someone with the vast capacity that she had um, doing secretarial work. Uh, she moved her way up to be the secretary of the dean of the College of Engineering. Well, while raising her children. Yes. Right? Yes. Um, did she have a mantra? Was there something? Is there something that your mom said regularly to you that you recall? You know, not, there was, there was a lot of silence. It, I think in um, the culture and, and the way that she, she worked really hard. She, she, and she, she bore all of the burdens uh, of our family. And so um, financial burdens were one of them. Um, mm-hmm. But we also had, um, Immigration burdens. We faced immigration issues. Right. Well, she was leading by example, which is often very much the case. Yeah. She so didn't have to say to you. She didn't have to say. And and I remember that we, we would spend a lot of time together, she and I, 
um, over the course of the 20 years that I had her mm-hmm. in my life um, as our relationship grew, there were lots of times when we would sit together in the same space in silence, Wow! but um, together. Yeah. So she really, uh, and you're right, she, she modeled the the guidance that she gives me even to this day. Yeah, and with the example of, of independence, right, for a young woman, I would imagine, wanting you to know that you, you need to make your own way in life. Yeah, she yeah. taught me how to survive. Yeah. Listen, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk about that pivotal moment when you opened up a book as a middle schooler and found something interesting. Stay with us for our Health Watch. We'll be right back. You're listening to Women to Watch. Now, the Women to Watch Health Watch. From Jefferson University Hospital, this is Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Alcohol can be enjoyed safely by many patients, but excess alcohol is associated with many diseases and increased mortality. Years of heavy alcohol can inflame and scar the liver into cirrhosis and even lead to liver failure and greatly increases the risk for liver cancer. And in patients with hepatitis B or hepatitis C, even small amounts of alcohol greatly increase risk for liver cancer that they already have. It's also linked with other cancers of the mouth, throat, voice box, esophagus, and maybe even colon. Ladies, even a few drinks per week, three to six, may increase your risk for breast cancer. The more you drink, the greater the risk. Binge drinking, four drinks on one occasion, especially among moderate users, adds risk to those with a sister of breast cancer. In pregnant women, heavy drinking leads to birth defects and other problems for the developing baby. Heavy use also increases both osteoporosis and falls leading to hip fractures. What's interesting, the American Heart Association reports low to moderate alcohol intake may lower heart disease, but we balance this with risks of pancreatitis, high blood pressure, obesity, stroke, car accidents, and so on. Drink in moderation and concentrate on other lifestyle changes like exercise. American Cancer Society and U.S. Department of Agriculture say stop at two drinks a day for men and no more than one per day for non-pregnant women. Women have an overall lower body size and metabolize alcohol more slowly. So the same amount of alcohol can have a much heavier effect in a woman than a man. One drink is 12 ounces of beer, five ounces of wine, or one shot of 80% alcohol. Quantity matters, not what you drink. So treat yourself like a diva. Take care of yourself, because nobody else will. Do you have a financial advisor who you trust that looks at you as more than just a number? At the Foley Hillsley Group, that person is Kristen Hillsley. Kristen's team has a different approach to managing your wealth called the Panorama Process. This unique process helps you obtain your financial goals easily because it's more than just investments, it's about you. To learn more, visit their website at fhbaird.com or call 610-238-6636. The Foley Hillsley Group is affiliated with Robert W. Baird and Company, Incorporated Member SIPC. Log on to fhbaird.com to learn more. That's fhbaird.com. So if you need a financial advisor you can trust, call Kristen Hillsley at 610-238-6636. That's 610-238-6636. 
You're listening to Women to Watch. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm joined this evening by Kay Yu, an attorney here in Philadelphia who heads the litigation and employment and labor groups at Ahmad Zafaris. And uh, just before the break, I mentioned a pivotal moment. I, I love this part of your story. Um, first of all, what I loved um, is that as a middle school aged young girl, you decided you needed to do more reading in the summer, which typically a parent has to say to the child, you need to do more reading. So um, you uh, went and pulled out a book that you were going to read for that summer. And, and I'll let you take the story from there. What did you find? Absolutely. Yes, I decided I wasn't well read enough. So I pulled out some of the classics um, from some books that we had at home. And as I was thumbing through it, um, sheets of paper fell out and onto the floor. And when I picked them up, I realized that they were deportation notices for the entire family. And that was the moment that I realized that I was an undocumented, out-of-status person to the extent that a 10-year-old <laughs> can right. understand that. Right, right. But that was, um, I guess, in the way that I was saying before that I spent a great deal of time in silence with my mom. She bore the burdens herself, often in silence. And... The, the way that the universe works sometimes is is um, difficult, but I believe very much that something wondrous comes from the the darkest moments that mm -hmm. we have. You were you were ten years old, and and you discovered something you know about your life. I wondered. And we'll talk about what you did with that information because it really propelled you to where you are today. And I love that, that, um, you know, to jump ahead a little bit, you decided, I'm going to go to law school. And you began to research um, everything around immigration. And, and, you know, you were determined to become a legal um, citizen here in the U.S. Well, that in so many ways, as a senior in college, I became my own first client. right. Yes. <laughs> because of my immigrant experience. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, I was very lucky in so many ways. Um, we were out of status, and it took me more than a decade to find my path to citizenship, which was a long one. And um, unfortunately, my mom passed away before that path materialized. So mm -hmm. she passed away in 1985, mm -hmm. and it was immigration reform in 1986 uh, that was enacted into law that gave me my path to citizenship. Yeah. Um, I had become, uh, uh, I, the first time I received my own status was at, to get my own student visa. So that's how I was in college. Mm -hmm. um, but that, of course, is a temporary visa. But with the Immigration Reform and Control Act, there was a grandfather provision that um, said that if you lived in the United States continuously since before 1972, you could apply directly for permanent residency. Did you make a decision at 10 years old to that, that you were going? Did you understand what you were, first let me ask, did you understand what you were looking at when you saw those papers? Or did you just think, you know, this 
it took a really long time for me to gain an understanding of what that meant. Mm-hmm. Um, the sort of pejorative uh, words that are used to uh, describe undocumented individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly uh, it was a time when we lived in the shadows. So having, uh, having that really weighed on my mom, particularly because as a 10-year-old, nothing really weighs on you that, right. that <laughs> one. So it really right. took uh, a lot of years uh, from when I was 10 year old, years old to when I was going to college right. to realize that um, I had some issues that I really needed to, to solve. So it took a lot, a lot of years yeah. um, for that to come to fruition. And, you know, um, I'm grateful to get my college education. I went to Columbia College mm-hmm. and they were need blind. Uh, so they provided the financial aid that I needed mm-hmm. uh, to be able to, to go, which was substantial. I'm very lucky for that. But it's because of Columbia College and my um, college recruiter specifically, um, Larry Momo, he really took me under his wing and I give him all the credit for helping me get into the school. Mm-hmm. And also because I went to Columbia, they were able to get uh, a student visa for me on my own without me having to leave the country, which is uh, unusual mm-hmm. and also very significant because if I had had to leave the country to get a student visa, I would not have been eligible to apply for permanent residency. Oh, okay. Interesting. So did you, you, did you carry this secret with you for all those years until you received your green card, or, or did you share with someone? Well, you know, it's not the kind of thing that, that you announce to, to right, most people. Right, but... So it, only really close friends mm-hmm. and people who, were, or who I could trust to be helpful to me in trying to find a solution. Yeah, that's a hard thing to carry with you. Um, when we come back, I want to talk about, your, you know, your years at Columbia. You got a degree in East Asian Studies, and I want to know what your plan was then prior to law school. You're listening to Women to Watch. We'll be right back. Now, the Women to Watch, Legal Watch. Hi, I'm Carol Weinman for Legal Watch. If you're the parent of a school-aged child, you know that the days leading up to the beginning of a new school year are filled with getting ready. For you, probably thoughts of shopping for school supplies and tracking down the new teachers are at the top of your to-do list. But for you who are parents of students with special needs, the to-do list looks very different. You know the new school year is about making sure your child receives what he or she needs. And the first item on your list should be reviewing the IEP. Does the IEP include services you requested? Is there an evaluation the school needs to complete? Does the IEP include accommodations you asked for? And does your child need a behavioral assessment? Might there be a need for a crisis plan? And if the student is 14 or older, what about an often overlooked transition plan? I have found that many of the parents who come to me have no idea what their rights are. They simply accept what the school tells them is enough. 
A student I represent is helped by taking short breaks to walk around. When I asked her mother if this was in the IEP, she said, hmm, I didn't know I could request that. I reminded her the IEP is to be individualized. That is what the I stands for in IEP, Individualized Education Plan. As a parent, you are entitled to have it customized to your child. It's not a one-size-fits-all plan. To learn more, you can contact me at AutismLegal.com. The leading autism expert, attorney, and legal consultant, Carol Weinman, understands how to handle your legal needs. Weinman Law prides itself on keen judgment and unparalleled instinct. Weinman focuses on you, the client, as an individual with a very specific need, demanding her unique, one-of-a-kind expertise. Contact Weinman Law at 215-591-3614. That's 215-591-3614. Weinman Law, offering women and men nationwide expert representation and consultation. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. I'm talking this evening with K.U. from Ahmad Zafaris Law Firm in Philadelphia. And Kay is sharing very openly and candidly her life story. And uh, I wanted to, to find out what, what your plan was uh, when you were at Columbia and you actually pursued a degree in East Asian studies. What were you thinking about for your future, I'll say, at that point? You know, the for a while, I, I didn't do a lot of planning into the future. My mom passed away in the middle of me being at college. So when I lost her, that that hit me very hard. Mm. And she'd asked me to forego uh, going away to uh, do a year abroad. I had planned on going to London, but she got pretty sick and she asked me not to go, which was difficult for me because I was very much looking forward to my year abroad, but um, it didn't take me very long to realize that she wouldn't have asked that of me if mm. her condition weren't pretty dire. Do you think she she knew before letting on to the family? Yes, I do believe that. Yeah. Um, so I, I didn't go, but I had taken a year off. So I thought that I would be taking care of my mom. Um, I guess that was my wish for a really long period of time. Mm -hmm. But she passed away within a week and a half of that conversation that we had. That's hard. Yeah, that's hard. So I didn't go to London. Okay. uh, But I took a year off and then returned to Columbia College to as a a junior. that was also the year that uh, the Immigration Reform and Control Act was passed. Mm-hmm. And so I was focused on um, 
on finding my path to citizenship, which actually I didn't know that I had one until I went to talk to an immigration lawyer. Oh, okay. So that happened during my, my college times. And, and he, he told me about uh, registry, which is what I ultimately applied for. And I really didn't believe him. So, <laughs> I'm like, that's too good to be true. So he, he told me about it. I went back to Columbia. I went to the law school library. And I looked up the law. And I found the provision, the grandfather provision. And so I said, okay, I, I, I'm starting to believe that this exists. But it also says that it's at the discretion of the attorney general. So I went back to the lawyer and I asked him about that. And I said, what's this moral ter- turpitude stuff? And what if the attorney general doesn't like me? Oh, gosh. <laughs> and, and he said, you know, you're going to be fine. And also, if you have the wherewithal to go look up the law and find this and, and do this level of research, you have the capacity to do this on your own and not have to pay me the several thousands of dollars I didn't have. Wow, how generous was that it for, was. for him to say that rather than kind of rope you in and, you know, absolutely, here's another client. And really, that's the moment that I started thinking about law school is when he said that. So I went through the, the effort of, of, you know, documenting my continuous residence, which was interesting because when you're when you arrive when you're three and a half and you're going through you know childhood, how do you prove that you've been continuously residing somewhere? Yes, right, right. <laughs> um, so I went back and I took a trip back to Seattle um, from New York and went to visit all of my schools and get wow. documentation um, that I had attended, got all my transcripts, and I put that together. Um, and I submitted my application uh, wow. directly to INS. So how many years did it take between your decision to apply and actually receiving it? So, I know that you got it on the day you graduated law school? Same year. Same, same year. year. Okay. So I, the first step was that I made the application and was granted permanent residency. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then I finished up college, uh, and I worked as a paralegal in New York City for a while and then set my sights on law school. And so it was 1993 that I both graduated law school and became a naturalized citizen of the United States of America. Wow. Tell me what that meant to you. Wow. It's it. Being an American is at the the core of my values. I have developed over the course of my own life experiences and going to to law school and then practicing law and serving as the chair of the Philadelphia Commission on Human Relations, where we enforce the city civil rights laws, that I have this appreciation for democracy and how we choose to, to live and what it means to have a representative government, to be part of a, a justice system, and that we, as a collective, and all, all Americans have a role to play 
And so the gaining the franchise, being able to vote, to me, is not a birthright. It's something that I had to earn. Mm. And so I feel a great responsibility around. And I am working to share my my appreciation and my sense of how much our votes matter. Wow. That's so, it's so beautiful to hear, number one, because we both know there's so much conversation that goes on um, out there in the social media world and, you know, in media in general. Um, but what you're talking about is so simple about your values um, matching what it means to be able to be free here, right? Yes. In America and speak about what, what matters to you and then have the opportunity to participate in policy making. Yes, absolutely. Um, it was a tremendous opportunity when I was at the Commission on Human Relations to look at our civil rights laws as part of the Fair Practices Ordinance and to see that we really needed to strengthen the protections that we have and to expand the remedies available so that when people's uh, civil rights are violated, when there is unlawful discrimination, that people have uh, a remedy, that they have a resource, a place to go, mm. and to have standards by which you know, all public accommodations all city services uh, live up to, to be free from unlawful discrimination. Mm. Well, you know, you're mentioning the, um, the commission, the Philadelphia Commission on Human Relations, and I want to talk about that more. Uh, first, I want to find out, you were appointed by Mayor Michael Nutter at yes. the time, and I'd love to know how that came to be, how he found you. Um, and I want to talk about, you know, really what, what the goals were and are of that commission and what, what your takeaways were from that time. I'm sure that you um, got some wonderful insight. We're going to take another break, and we will be back with KU. Leadership Watch. Hi, everybody. Holly Dowling here as your Leadership Watch. And today I'm excited to inspire you. And I'm using that word very intentionally. What I hear a lot about in many, many leaders and many people out there, we always talk about motivating people. And motivation, isn't that the key to leading and being a great leader? It's how do you motivate people? And here's what I'm going to tell you. No. Motivation is not the word, and specifically why I don't call myself a motivational speaker. I'm an inspirational speaker, and as a leader, are you inspiring others, or are you trying to motivate them? And here's why this is a huge distinction. Motivation is intrinsic. You cannot force someone to be motivated. They find motivation within themselves. And when you've done your job as a leader and you've truly inspired people, and I mean anybody in your world of influence, at home, your family, your loved ones, your colleagues, your friends, your teams, the people you work with and you lead, the difference is when you inspire someone, and according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, to inspire someone is to exert an animating, enlivening, and exalting influence on them. This word is really important, and leaders miss this. Our goal and our dream, if you truly take leadership and the privilege that it is to lead others, it's an honor and a privilege, then what are you doing every day to inspire the people around you? They will be motivated 
because they'll find that within their hearts and their souls and their mind. You cannot own and take the job of motivating others. You can own the privilege of inspiring others. And inspiring means being a leader that leads with love and service, being a leader that truly cares about the people in their world. So get after it and start inspiring everyone around you. Please reach out to me. I'd love to hear more about everything you're doing at hollydowling.com. is Holly Dowling. Holly is a dynamic keynote speaker and inspirational thought leader. You see what we have the ability to do and the power we have. You hold the power for good. Each and every one of us can do something. Holly has inspired millions around the world, including over 500,000 executives, and her show is listened to in 87 countries. Now we're going to spend 25 minutes on your areas of opportunity. Listen to our internationally acclaimed podcast, A Celebration of You, Holly Dowling, empowering those who can change the world. HollyDowling.com. Now, the women to watch. Tech Watch. Hi, I'm Mary Manso, partner and CEO of Pathways Consulting Group. Our focus is delivering world-class enterprise service management solutions, or ESM for short. Although ESM affects every role in every organization, people always ask me, what is ESM? Simply put, it's automating the process by which any request in your company is submitted, approved, and fulfilled. I've been invited to participate as the tech lead for Women to Watch. Since this is my first segment, I'd like to share my journey as a woman in technology and invite each of you to share yours. Some 30 years ago, I entered the world of technology. I didn't even realize what I was doing was technical. I didn't go to school for technology, but learning to use multiple applications was critical to get my job done. When it was time to start a family, I left to raise my three girls. I returned to work eight years later. Although my background was in business, I once again found myself working in technology. It was amazing how much had changed. Not only did I need to learn the business, I needed to learn applications and technologies that powered the business. These not only improved the way I did my job, but have become a part of everyday life. Today, almost every household has a computer. We have laptops, smartphones, and iPads. At home, we use applications to communicate, like text messaging, Instagram, and Facebook. One of my personal favorites is Bitmoji. (laughs) At work, we use applications like ServiceNow, SAP, and Microsoft. To communicate, we use email, chat, or LinkedIn. Let's face it, whether we like it or not, we're all becoming technically savvy. It's part of our everyday lives, and it's not going away, ever. Pathways is powered by technology provided by ServiceNow. This cloud platform allows us to help our clients improve their business processes and manage the entire life cycle of a successful ESM project no matter where our clients are in the world. Technology at home or at work allows me to get more done than I ever could have imagined 30 years ago. If you're a woman in technology, I'd love to hear about your journey. Email me at mary at pathwayscg.com. Thank you. Welcome back. You're listening to Women to Watch. Again, my name is Sue Rocco, and I'm, I'm having a wonderful conversation and interview today with Kay Yu, who is um, a lead at Ahmad Zafaris, a law firm here in Philadelphia. And um, as we said just before the break, um, Mayor Michael Nutter appointed you to the commission, the Philadelphia Commission on Human Relations in 2008. First, I want to know if you can describe for the listeners what is the goal of that commission? Yes, so the Philadelphia Commission on Human Relations 
is actually the very first local agency of its ilk um, historically. So it was established in 1951. Um, It has broader protections than at the state or federal level. And so there are a number of protected categories, um, including race, gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, disability, age. It's, it's a very uh, wide list of protections. And the, the goal of the Human Relations Commission is to provide a place where people can bring formal complaints of discrimination and also to have a community uh, outreach and to improve community relationships which is a very, very important part of what the commission does. And how many years did you uh, were you in the role of chairperson? So I did it for about four and a half years. I, was, I served on the commission for, the, for that long, mm-hmm. starting in 2008, which was at the beginning of Mayor Nutter's administration. And how did he find you? So we first met at a function when I was a partner at Pepper Hamilton, mm-hmm. and he was on the campaign trail. He was running for mayor. He had left his position on council so that he could he could run. And I remember the the event. He he was running late. This is the life of a candidate. You do You're always running yes. late. <laughs> <laughs> and you do your dozen or so events in a row. So right. he was the keynote speaker and he let us know that that he was he would be there, would be there, and and the the event was winding down. So we said, we understand, no worries, just you don't have to come. He came anyway, and um, he impressed me so much because he he came even though um, it was pretty much after the the end of the the formal part of the event, and he was there meeting folks and talking to people. So I had a chance to speak with him, and I told him about how I was about to become president of the Asian Pacific American Bar Association of Pennsylvania. Wow. And he took my card and made a note of it. Uh, and But not, he didn't just talk with people like me who were attorneys, um, but I remember eyeing him, speaking with everybody who was working the event. And he spent a, a, a great deal of time talking to a woman who was working the code check. And he, I could just see he was in a moment of genuine connection mm-hmm. with one of his uh, future constituents. And that really made an impression on me. So I, I stayed in touch with his office, not so much with him, because that was literally the first time I'd ever met him. Mm-hmm. He's a busy guy. You yeah. can't just be texting him or calling him. <laughs> and, you know, he it was apparent to me that he cared about making sure that there was diverse representation of people uh, that he was appointing to his boards and commissions. Mm-hmm. So particularly when they were interested in filling legal positions, I would get a call and talk to, to his, his office, um, you know, his, his people. people. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And one day... Um, one day I got a voicemail, and as I was listening to it, I thought, wow, that voice is really familiar. 
that's the mayor calling me. <laughs> so he did. So yeah. that's how I found out. Wow. He, he, well, yeah, that's a great example of, you know, how you can have an impression on someone and not even realize it. And, you know, it will come back around. Right. He was you said something in that conversation, however brief it was. And as you said, you used that word connection and, and he he made a mental note and he remembered Apparently he did. <laughs> so I, I got on the phone and he didn't say any, the reason that he was calling on the message. So eventually we were connected and he said that he wanted me to serve on the Commission on Human Relations. Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a big task and a big role. And one of the things I read about that you worked on um, were issues around violence in public schools. And I just wanted to know what your what you took away from working on that particular issue, what your thoughts on are, are, excuse me, on how we can make headway there. It's such a tough issue in Philadelphia. So there was um, a, a day of violence at South Philadelphia High School in December 2009. And that's not what sparked national media attention. What sparked that level of attention was that the Asian immigrant students at Southern protested, and they protested the adults in the building, not creating a safe environment for them. And they went to the School Reform Commission and took their protests there, and they actually boycotted school. And they they not only protested, but they brought a message of awareness and attention and um, to focus on the, the ways that we all have responsibility as the adults to create safe environments in all of our schools. So we... We looked at um, what was going on then, but we also decided to take a broader view and suspected that there might have been issues like this and that they, these issues weren't isolated to one particular high school in mm. the district. So that's when we decided that to do a year-long series of 11 public hearings and we went all over the city of Philadelphia um, and asked people to come tell us their stories and share their experiences uh, with intergroup conflicts and with solutions. Good. Solutions. You found some solutions, I hope. One last question for you as we get to the end of the show. I'm wondering if you have any political aspirations yourself, because I think you should. <laughs> Um, but, you know, and if not, just any future plans, you know, outside of the work that you're doing today as an attorney, do you have any other aspirations? Well, I am very hopeful that I will find a path to return to public service. And so I am in an exploratory phase right now. Oh, and okay. hopefully I'll find a path soon. Okay. I, I don't want to put you on the spot. You don't have anything to reveal or a big announcement? <laughs> Not quite yet. <laughs> Not quite yet. We will have you back. 
Wonderful. We'll have you back. And um, thanks so much for joining me and coming in and sharing. You know, that was a difficult story to share. And I'm sure that our listeners were inspired by it um, and what you decided to do uh, to create the life that you wanted. It's a great lesson. And thank you, Sue, for this opportunity and for watching women this closely. We need more of this. Thank you so much. You're, you're very welcome. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. I want to thank our sponsors always and our contributors for helping to make Women to Watch the go-to show for women's leadership where we share the real story behind the title. Make it a great week, everyone. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.